You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves in the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe and Vince. Before the dawn of video games, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, and Call of Cthulhu were the premier interactive storytelling games. The Game Master would create a world or a story and populate it with interesting NPCs, an adventure would ensue. A group of friends would work through, players would play the part of the character they created, and the GM would play the part of any NPC that they came across. Dialogue could lead anywhere your imagination would carry you, and the outcomes were always variable. You shared in the triumphs and the failures and you worked not only with each other, but the Game Master to shape the story that unfolded before you. With the rise of video games, it was a natural attempt to bring the love of adventure and excitement from tabletop role-playing games to digital format. Over the years, there have been many successes, and probably more failures. Enter Divinity Original Sin, a game partially funded through Kickstarter by Larian Studios. Following in the way of great titles like Baldur's Gate as inspiration, something Larian wears on their sleeve, The game was met with both critical acclaim and a strong following of devoted gamers. It played like a classic RPG while offering great challenge, near-limitless roaming exploration and story, and interactive environments and spells. You could explode walls, create new spells by combining two spells of your party together, and have interesting dialogue with NPCs. To say that I devoted a lot of time to this game would be an understatement. Last year it was announced that there would be a sequel to the game, Divinity Original Sin 2, and it would be bigger more expansive, and better. It crushed Kickstarter, originally asking for only $500,000 and getting over $2 million in pledges. And we have been eagerly waiting this game ever since. And boy, did we get some news at the uh, PC Gamer Weekender presentation with, uh, and I'm going to screw up this name right here, Sven Vinke? Vinke? Vinke. Sven is good enough. Yeah, yeah Sven. Sven. We can do but- Sven. Sven's good, but holy shit, did he try to cram a lot of information into oh the time that he was getting? <laughs> a little too much, if I'm... <laughs> Joe and I were talking about this, and and while everything he said was legitimately super interesting and whatnot, he's a terrible presenter. He's just mm-hmm. got this rapid machine gun pace. The tonality rarely changes, and he's just going to end this constant... Smacking was driving me fucking nuts. <laughs> so I actually watched it twice just so that I could take some yeah, notes because it was, mm-hmm. again, there was no break there to actually enjoy what he's saying because justifiably some of what he's saying was like, holy fuck, that's awesome. Like, give us a second to take that in. Yeah. Like, it's not only, oh my God, that's awesome. It's, oh my God, that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was interesting to me, too, and I got the feeling that they basically came up to him and said, you have a half an hour to talk. That's it. No more. That's where we're cutting you off. We're going to get the cane and rope you off the off the stage. And he's like, but I have like two hours of material that I have to present here. I really this is really cool stuff. Look, look, it's awesome. And he just ran with it. On top of that, English not being his first language, it was definitely a hard slog to get through. But that said, there were so many fantastic tidbits that we got out of there. First of all, the fact that they wanted to make a more reactive game world. Did, now, did both of you play the Divinity Original Sin? 
I did I've not. played it, but not too much. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was in a big pile of games I got at the end of last year. <laughs> so the way that you interact with the environments in that game is you can blow anything up pretty much. You can find alternate paths to get to your goals. You can completely sidestep encounters. And not only that, but you can create new spells. Like if you're in an area with a lot of water and you cast chain lightning, you can electrocute the water or you can cast a fireball and steam will come up. Things like of that nature. They want to make the game more reactive and interactive than that. And specifically, they say they want us to break the system. And I love when game companies say that. Well, again, what that does, too, is it's showing that they are in much the same way as their dialogue charts, which I know you'll get to. They're looking at every possible kind of outcome. So that shows that they not only have a good grasp of what their world is, who everybody is, and how to complete all the the quests and whatnot, but also possible ways that it could be subverted or whatever. I don't know. I was the more he talked about that at different points, the more impressed I was because it's it's easy to go even let's say the telltale route where you offer a few different choices and whatnot, but it's still not expanding that much. You have the breadth of the story that you want to tell. And that's, that's how far it's going to go. You may change lanes occasionally as a story dictates in the choices you make, but still you're going in the same direction. Whereas with this, it's so much broader. Like again, mm-hmm. that chart of the simple conversation was like, <laughs> that was a one line chart. And see, because of the type of, story that my son and I were working on for a while. That's exactly what we were coming up with as one of the the challenges, because it's an insane amount of choices that continually branch out. And again, the fact that they are paying that much attention to not just that in terms of how it affects narrative, but also the world, because every time you're choosing to destroy something, you're changing that world's narrative, the, the, oh, the manner gone. in which it's, it's, it can affect your story. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more later, too. You were going to say something, Vince? Yeah, it's definitely something, at least you and I, Joe, can get a better appreciation of because we've run a lot of tabletop games that, mm-hmm. uh, as we said, Divinity pulls a lot of its inspiration from. And just that freedom of, as the GM or as the game designer, you can never expect everything your players are going to do. They might be completely stumped by what you thought would be a simple quest, or they can find a way to circumvent what you thought was going to be a big roadblock or alpha strike the crazy boss encounter you spent an hour working on. And so many other game studios would you know try to prevent that like put a whole bunch of checks in place that okay they can't do this they can't do that they have to fight this guy on top of the mountain or our big set piece is doomed whereas they're just like yeah fucking do it you know what come up with something we didn't think of that would be great well and i thought it was interesting too because they talked about and, and we'll talk about the tags system a little bit later but they talked about for every encounter that they have planned they have what they call the n plus two mm-hmm. planned out where it's they figure out that there's going to be a certain number of interactions based off of the party that you have. So party being N, you can have four players at a time, whether it's one player with three NPCs, two players with two NPCs, so on and so forth. But you have a party of four and the race, the class, the skills and the background and personality levy a certain amount of interactions that can happen or possibilities. Right now, they account for those 
plus two that they haven't accounted for, really. They say that something's going to happen that we haven't planned for, and then we have to have a failsafe. And I thought that was absolutely cool, because it's not like necessarily a failsafe, like they're going to force you to do an encounter your way. But the example they gave was pretty cool, where let's say you have a party of four players interacting with, like, a town guard, and you're asking questions, and then another player character starts asking questions, and then another player character starts asking (laughs) questions, and then eventually the town guard's just like, what the fuck is your problem? Holy hell. All right, fine. You know what? Screw it. I'm about to beat your asses down, and then goes into a combat scenario. So you can actually force the system to get aggressive with you as a result of it, but it doesn't feel like it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's not always going to be the answer, but I thought it was a really cool touch. It, again, it's the GM thing. Like, you know what? Fuck you. Here comes a dragon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'll, I'll do a rocks couple. fall. Everybody dies. <laughs> oh, I love doing that. Or the thumb of God. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here that we're going to that we'll get into a little more detail. But the, the core of it is they want to make the, the game world more consistent with the history that makes sense and that a narrative that doesn't interfere with breaking the game. Let me ref- let me say that again. A narrative that doesn't interfere with breaking the game. Now, like Vince said, they want you to break that game. They don't care how you get there. The story is going to be there regardless of what you do. And we saw this actually back in November. And it's a video that Roger relinked to me today was when you go and you're, you're trying to find out who poisoned this woman. And the character decides, well, I'm just going to kill her and then talk to her ghost because that's a lot easier than trying to cure her. <laughs> sure. Shit. Got his answer. Story yep. continued. Story absolutely continued. And I thought that was absolutely cool. And that's something that I, I would love to see more games do. But, I mean, it, it, that's what sets Divinity. Yeah, but you got to think of it in terms of you need specific types of writers on your staff who are not afraid to think outside of the box. Because not every writer is going to come up with those type of odd solutions to a problem kind of thing. And that's just one example. So you need a writing staff that's diverse, which they talked about, but Mm -hmm. also that really is not afraid of not just taking chances, but like I said, thinking outside of the box and that's, you don't get that from a lot of studios. No, you don't, especially not American studios either. And I mean, just to put it into perspective, divinity original sin had one and a half writers. And what I mean by one and a half writers, they had one writer (laughs) And then he had to go do something else because he was already pre-planned because the game was the game was delayed for a couple different reasons. So they had to bring somebody else in to finish everything off. So they had one and a half writers. Now they have a team of eight. Uh, And this includes Chris Avalon, who is a pedigree of writer for RPGs that is just out of this world. That's a huge increase in the amount of time that there resources that you're devoting to your story and narrative. And they have spent all of their time creating the world, the world, such as different dialects, history uh, to quote uh, Sven here. They created a lore Bible. Mm-hmm. That was one of their primary tasks was to create a lore Bible for this game to make it a, a world that exists and perpetuates. And that was amazing to me. And and that's something that sets Divinity and other games like Dragon Age and Witcher apart and why they're so much more phenomenal than their competitors is that they take the time to do all the work you won't see. And you saw he had that uh, that one slide with all the negatives for how big they wanted to make the game. And the big one was publisher. Why do we need this? You know, and it's something that this game gets and a few other games get. And it's really what makes them the cream of the crop. 
Well, and they also listen to their player base, too. And it shows, right? Like you show the Kickstarter that's so wildly successful, they can go to a publisher and say, hey, we only need to 500,000. All these people already paid for the game. They, they This is what they want. We're going to make it. It's already sold. Mm-hmm. Curiosity, you know, I, think, I can't remember. Did either of you back it? Oh, hell yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't because I hadn't played the original at that point. Yeah, I backed the, the, the early bird tier, but that was it. I forgot what tier I went in on, but I definitely backed it. I know I didn't have the money, but I found the money and I backed it. <laughs> so by by found the money, is this player character found the money? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I may be missing a kidney. Uh, <laughs> so part of that, that whole in, in developing or developing a larger story they did a complete 180 with the characters. In the first game, you lost your identity. You basically woke up, didn't know who you were, and had to figure out everything that was going on. Here, you're starting the game knowing who you are. You have a race, an origin story, and personality that will basically create your identity and your goals as a character in this game because every combination is going to have a different set of goals. That's horrend- that's horrendously large undertaking just from character creation alone. That's cool. When he started going on about the the manner in which the races work with the origin stories and the personalities and everything like that, that was really bloody cool. Like it's it's kind of we've seen the same thing where in your race class combo hell I'm just gonna keep going back to fucking hex now is <laughs> doing the same kind of thing <laughs> but we need to start seeing a lot more of that like there the, one of the things that I loved about WoW when it first came out was that you couldn't be everything mm-hmm. but over time they've been allowing different races to become different classes. And while that gets people very excited, and while, yes, I would like to have a panda druid, the fact remains I still preferred it when there was a lot more stringent rules about which races could play which classes because it it just made sense kind of thing. And it, it gave it more of a special meaning when you chose a specific race class combo kind of thing, especially again, going back to the very early days when those racial benefits actually mattered a great deal as well. Well, I think what's also interesting here too, is you pick your origin before you pick your race, which is Mm -hmm. completely different than every other game you play ever. You always pick your race and you figure out what's going on here. You pick what sounds cool to you as far as what your origin is going to be. And then it tells you what races are available for that. And then it tells you what classes can be available as a, as a result of that, which I think is very, very cool because it puts more emphasis on what your goal is going to be and less of, oh, I'm going to be the pretty elf. And then here's four options. It's here's every option. Here's what that's. And then here's the races that it can be made available to. And I like the fact that they're putting more emphasis on that story and less on just the, the race and class. And I think that's a huge step forward. And, and also keep in mind, I mean, he didn't talk a lot about like from the gameplay side of things. Divinity isn't a series that really likes the term class. Nope. You can kind of just freeform it. So so even like your race class combo is irrelevant. It's your origin race mm-hmm. is what's really important. And that really drives home what they want to do. This is a narrative experience. The gameplay is awesome. The gameplay is going to be there. But the focus of this game is really going to be on the narrative. Absolutely. 
And that narrative is also going to influence things like your skills and talents as well. Mm -hmm. Your origin story, the choices you make are going to define what's available to your character as you progress. And I think that's absolutely fantastic as well because so often – and WoW is a great example – you get what you get because everybody gets it, right? Every shaman has access to the same things. Every druid has access to the same things. Here, the Red Prince, your your lizardness of awesome – might have a completely different skill set in my playthrough than it does in Vince's playthrough because of what we chose. And I think that's really cool. And then personalities will play into that as well. And how you behave in the game plays into that. Like there's going to be behavioral questions like how you survived puberty. And then you get to, then maybe you get to choose your gender. And, and then that's also all that stuff's going to have impact on how players or how NPCs interact with you, how they view you. And that leads into what they call the tag system. Now, the tag system is your character creation steps basically are going to set to influence your dialogue choices, character interactions, and your tags accumulate as you progress through the game. Think of these as like markers that accumulate to your player character that NPCs can key off of. Every dialogue is tailored to the individual character and the tags that they've accumulated up until that point. You can choose to select which party members also interact with those NPCs which also influences the outcomes. So if I have a Imperial Dwarf in my party and I have a, you know, cannibalistic elf and I choose the cannibalistic elf to go talk to the guard, he's probably not going to like her as much as maybe the Imperial Dwarf. Like all of that stuff is going to play into it. I think that's really, really cool. Oh, yeah, it's I'm like going to be it's, an elf. <laughs> it's like how Sir Reginald picked up a few too many points in the arsonist tag. <laughs> I am going to be a fucking elf that eats the victims like a chew oh, character. Yes. <laughs> My elf might be named Tony. <laughs> well, I think that was cool because it wasn't necessarily specific. I'm going to make one was... so, name it Savoy and come fuck over your game. <laughs> oh. But I thought it was cool because that option, like you, you mentioned that option as the elf. Every character has that option, so to speak, but it's just a different effect. Like the wood elves, and I thought that was cool, they're memory eaters. And when yeah. they kill something, they can eat it and they can potentially learn skills or, or abilities or something from what they've downed. Whereas zombies will heal themselves. And yes, there is an undead playable race. That Kickstarter goal was obliterated. Uh, and they humans can awesome. <laughs> they look amazing. And then there's humans who can, you know, eat the dead, but they might get sick and then infect other people. <laughs> That's awesome. I everything about that sounded cool. And the, and the skill combos with like being in blood rain mm-hmm. and then raising creatures and whatnot. I was going, I am so going to be an elf. <laughs> I don't say that often, but this game is like, <laughs> you guys made elves badass. I am so going to be an elf. Now, another cool thing about this game is the GM mode. Um, and we can't call it Dungeon Master mode because that's trademarked by Wizards of the Coast. Go figure. But Game Master mode where a player can actually run either the current game or use the now what's going to be insanely robust editor to create their own stories or modify the current game. So that as a GM, you can go through and say, you know, this dialogue tree doesn't make sense or this this town's laid out shittily or this quest could be better. And you can go through and edit it and then invite your friends into play. And then you can react to them in real time. You can change things on the fly, whether it's inserting NPCs and, and inserting dialogue choices or setting traps or moving stuff around. That's absolutely phenomenal to me as well, because a lot of games tote uh, a GM mode. And Sword Coast is one of those games that has done that, but everything is done 
in real time and it's sort of I'm trying to tell you how to phrase it. You, there's two separate sections. There's the pre-planning and then there's the real time here. Everything happens at once. You can pre-plan, but the, you're not set in stone. You can change anything at any point in time. That's to me as somebody who loves to run games. That's crazy good. See, the only problem I have with it is you just brought it up. Sorcos. I mean, we spend so much time praising this and, and looking forward to it. And fuck, we haven't played one thing together for it. I, I, and I'm hearing nothing about it from anyone else. So I get the impression that it's just not a function that is as popular as we would like it to be. It's it's one of those things where Sword Coast GM mode is very set in like how Wizards of the Coast wants to encourage Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons to be played, which is a lot of pre-built, pre-set constants without a lot of freeform stuff within and that's just the way the rules for fifth edition are designed kind of lead things in that direction like you notice a big difference between uh, a DD game run off somebody who pre-plans everything versus someone who's very freeform it's it's almost two completely different games and wizards is especially with the tools available in uh, sword coast online has it very much in that predetermined preset path whereas the actual live action gm mode there's not a whole lot you can do like you can drop a trap you can spawn a few more enemies but you don't have the breadth of abilities that divinity is going to give you because they approach their their design from the other point of view of being almost the sandbox where you have to be very reactive and have to be on your toes and be able to alter things as your players progress through the game. So it's it's two very different concepts of the design. One of them is a lot more fun from a video game standpoint, whereas at the tabletop, they both have their merits. Well, I mean, Sven said something very, very important uh, many times during this presentation. They are making a game that they would want to play. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of the huge point there, because there's a difference between a big company contracting out and saying, we want you to make a game for this IP and them going, we're going to make our own world and we're going to make this cool. And wouldn't this be cool if we did this? And wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And then they do it. And that's what they're doing here. And that's what they're they're trying to make a game from the standpoint of we're gamers, too. We want to play our game. This is what we would want. We're going to go ahead and we're going to fucking do it. Now, there, this game is going to accommodate multiplayer. And it's not just going to be like PvP arenas. And it's not just going to be pre-done uh, adventures where you can invite people in. No, it's going to be everything in between. This game is a sandbox. Multiplayer is a sandbox as well. You can have four players in the same game doing completely different things in completely different parts of the world that will affect the world. You like the example is the, there was a mine that you could blow up. And if you blew up that mine, everybody in it dies. You don't know what NPCs are in there. Those NPCs will never exist for every other player in this game. That mine is gone. Players will come across it. There'll be a wreckage. They showed a player who was going through and blowing up towns with plague barrels and explosive barrels. Those towns are gone, completely and totally gone. Any other player comes across those, those don't exist. But not only that, but any interactions you have with NPCs, quests that you complete, major milestones that happen, those are cascading and those affect other players. So if you side with, let's say, the Imperial Dwarves and then somebody comes along and tries to you know, parlay with them, 
they're probably not going to do that or they're going to be very reticent to do so. It's going to make things a lot more difficult. Now, it's not to say that everything is adversarial here. It's just the game is accounting for that adversarial gameplay. And it's not so much about killing your opponent, but accomplishing whatever your main goal is, which I think is kind of a huge thing right there. Too many times we see that PvP is this closed off arena where your entire goal is just to be the last man standing. Here, you have a goal, and this is set by your character creation process as well, where you're going to have something you need to do in this game, and you need to go and do it before everybody else does it. And that's how you claim ultimate victory, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, and it's a goal that the other players do not necessarily share and probably more often than not are going to be in opposition to and not just multiplayer like in single player your npcs might be in opposition to a lot of your goals as well oh yeah i've I've, that's that's a carryover from the original game too because in original sin there were points in time where certain party npcs if they didn't like what you were doing would turn on you and try to kill you Uh, my my sorceress was an absolute bitch At at one point, and I didn't play too much, but this is just a great example of how the their their system works. And this was in the first town. I came across like a stall selling fish, and you know, two little urchin kids came up and tried to steal one of the fish. And I was like, "Hey, hey, you know, don't do that. That's not right." And the sorceress went, "Hey, come on, they're, they're freaking starving kids. Let let them let them have the fish." I'm like, "All right, okay, fine, have the fish." A minute later, the guard walks up. Hey, why are you stealing that fish? <laughs> and the kid's like, they told me I could. And she's like, we said no such thing. I was like, you. <laughs> yep. And it's it's just the way that with the and that was all uh, AI because you could only choose the dialogue for the character you were controlling at that one point. Mm-hmm. But now having much more control over everything that's going to happen is it's going to be chaos. And I can't wait. <laughs> Well, I well, like what they were. He was saying too about it depends on who you choose to talk to someone as well. So based on their race and their origin story as well, you'll get different accesses and different things open up that otherwise different paths you wouldn't get to do those quests. Now, I thought it was also cool too. They talked about two uh, systems that for multiplayer as well that were very very interesting. Uh, first being the disagreement system. You can actually disagree with another player that you're with if you're playing cooperatively and you can attempt to resolve those conflicts. Now, they didn't go into too many details about it, but in the original game, it was... I'm going to assume it's a little more intense than Rock, Paper, Scissors. (laughs) The original was Rock, Paper, Scissors. Here, I'm going to go ahead and guess there's probably going to be some form of combat or, or like, you know dick swinging or something there's going to be something that happens but they the look on sven's face when that question came and he's like oh we got something planned for that i was like oh it's going to be good and i think that's cool because conflict resolution was something that i think swotor did really really well uh where it was a chance basically everybody got to choose and then one option got picked type deal uh i thought that was really well done but sometimes you would be with somebody in in one of those those instances that that was a really shitty answer and I really don't like you, but I have no way to actually like influence or change that here. There's a chance that you can actually influence and change that. Mm -hmm. I I was almost thinking something along the lines of what burning wheel does, which burning wheel is an incredibly deep tabletop role-playing game Mm -hmm. where there's an actual worksheet for conflict resolution where, you know, the player, you know, the players put in, you know, what they want out of the conflict, you know, what specific skills they would have to support that or knowledges. And it's a mechanic in the game that, okay, this is the person who wins the argument. So that not in that exact system, but I think that's definitely a lot farther where they're going to go with this. Yeah. And that's actually 
I would love I can't wait to see what they finalize on because anything they put in I think is going to be well knowing them well implemented because let's be honest just pulling at your sword is always going to be plan B oh yeah <laughs> so I don't think that should be the the primary form of conflict resolution but definitely something tied in with skill choices and tags and backgrounds and that sort of stuff right now your name in P <laughs> Well, you could do that, I'm sure. You know, not while you're in the game, but I mean at your desk, I'm sure you can do that. The other the other cool thing about the multiplayer was the combining of real-time and turn-based because it is a turn-based combat game. And I thought it was cool that you could actually develop a plan with the people you're playing with that you could distract the guards and you can be engaged in turn-based combat while one of your fellows goes off and does stuff in real-time. And the game will just kind of distort time and things will happen simultaneously, but but at the same not, I shouldn't but not in the same instance. They'll be separated so that you're not locked in. So let's say you're a rogue and you need to go sneak past enemy lines to go, you know, get to the top of the tower like they use there and then grab something or, you know, use a distraction to free somebody from a cell. You can go do that while your party members are engaged in combat being the distraction. And you're not locked into this turn-based combat. You can just go do it. And I thought that was really, really cool because a lot of games that do that cooperative. Really, really cool? That's all you're going to say? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking awesome. How's that? Thank you very much. You're welcome. Because so many games fail fucking hard at that where it's like, oh, everybody's in the turn sequence. Okay, it's your turn. You can go click and do your thing now. Or everything is real-time, like Sword Coast, where there's no break in the combat and everything is just willy-nilly real-time. I like this. I absolutely love the fact that they're combining these two systems and allowing them to coexist. And that's a huge engineering feat, as far as I'm concerned, in a game like this. Yep. That was very impressive. It's one of those things where it's not cool. It makes you question what sort of sorcery they're using to develop this game. No, it makes me question why nobody else has fucking done it. Somebody has to be first. <laughs> well, you know what? As long as Larian keeps doing this, they're going to keep getting my money. I am a devoted fan at this point. And everything I've seen here, every bit of artwork, every bit of pre-alpha footage, every bit of just discussion they've had about this. I was telling Roger, I can't fucking wait for this game. I'm foaming at the mouth to play. This is the game. That, this is the type of game that I, you're just not going to hear from me for a week. I was actually... Like, th- this is the type of game that I, despite there being multiplayer, I do still like to just single player and just keep it going during the day and then pause throughout and have fun with it. But the more that you hear about these types of multiplayer elements that they're putting into it, and that's something that he alluded to as well, just by the breadth of how large this game is, that you are going to want to do with, with friends and whatnot. But again, intuitive game mechanics like this that will make it so that you don't feel like you're locked into whatever the rest of the party wants to do. You can go off and do your own thing if you want as well. That's phenomenal. Like that's, that goes above and beyond what we're used to seeing from multiplayer RPGs like this. And, and I, yeah, that's, I can't wait to play this game with, with other people. You know, what would be really cool to me is, and they didn't touch on this, but if the multiplayer co-op can be drop in drop out and like the p like the pvp style of it you can go off and do your own thing there's no reason the three of us can't have an ongoing long-term game yeah 
where we're playing cooperatively and then we go off and do our I own can thing. think of a couple of reasons. Well, because you'll you'll try to murder everybody, Vince, because you're the full hearted <laughs> bastard. Seriously, I saw those exploding barrels and I'm like, Vince better not see this. Listen, it's all going to be in pursuit of the your NPC head. body count is far higher than Sir Reginald's. That's all I'm going to say. That remains to be seen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, again, this is this is a game that I backed 100 percent. It's a must have if you're into RPGs, if you're into interactive storytelling, if you're into just anything in that genre that you just want a game that I mean, you're going to have probably thousands of hours of gameplay if you really wanted to in this. This is something you need to pay attention to 100 percent. I kind of wish I had backed it at the hoodie tier because that fucking hoodie <laughs> is awesome looking. Well, if I know them and after the Kickstarter for the first one, don't worry, the hoodies will be available. Yeah. All right. Let's move on from there. We got some very interesting news on Darkest Dungeon because we've had some interesting, not necessarily presses, but conferences going on and presentations for uh, the uh, Game Developers Conference. And it led to some very interesting talks as well on different things. One of them was for Darkest Dungeon, talking about some of the inspiration behind it. And I, I know I sent it to you, Vince, and mm-hmm. asked you to check it out. But what I failed to ask you is you'd even watch the series in reference. Uh, the Band of Brothers? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because otherwise it wouldn't mean much to you. <laughs> but for me, when I read that, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, and this is one of the things I love about GDC is you get the developers talking about their games in a completely different way than they would at any other show. They're not concerned with talking about features. I mean, they can be, but it's it's all in pursuit of the greater goal of explaining not just how they made the game, but why they made the game. So this Darkest Dungeon uh, talk at GDC really was talking a lot about the affliction and virtue system, which is as you're in a dungeon, if your stress level reaches 100, your character freaks out, has a small chance of gaining a positive buff and a much larger chance of just fucking you. <laughs> and they said one of the big inspirations they drew from it was from the series Band of Brothers. You know, it's a World mm-hmm. War II series of these soldiers who were just in you know, horrible wartime situations and they were talking about a specific character that prior to that point, you know, he'd been model soldier, you know, tough badass you know, until he's in the middle of an assault and the foxhole right next to him gets shelled and two of his buddies are just gone. Like, that's it. That That's the end of it. And he just he was done at that point. He was no longer badass soldier. Now he's, you know, I want to go home. I, I I can't do this anymore. And that's ties into a lot of the stuff with Darkest Dungeon where you'll have a character that's just like, you know what? Nope. Fuck this. <laughs> I, I don't want anything to do with this shit. And I'm fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> and it's so cool because it, you look at the stuff that Darkest Dungeon does. And this was a big thing that they said. It's not about mental illness. None of these people are ill. There's there's nothing medically wrong with them, if you will. Like it's It's not a disease. It's just They've reached their limit. This is how they react to a stressful situation. And they also talked about uh, another big inspiration being aliens, where you have the character Hudson. <laughs> and I love how this is kind of 
silhouetted by some of the most famous lines in movie history. Hudson, badass space marine. Fuck everything. I'm going to kill it until he reaches his breaking point. And that's when you get the famous line. Game over, man. Game over. We're done. It's over. Contrasted by Ripley, who, as things get more stressful, as she, you know, continues to get screwed by the forces of the aliens, steals up and rises to the occasion. Get off her, you bitch. So I thought it was a really cool way of showing the game mechanic as reflected through other media. And it makes so much sense. I've been playing a lot of this game for the last little while now. Basically, <laughs> once I finished Layers of Fear, I just dove right back into this because it's it's such a good game whether you have just a few minutes, enough time for one run or multiple runs. I don't know. There's a, there's so many things that this game does well that I love. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't yet read this little thing. And so, I've, again, I've been playing a lot. And what's funny is that I, I've been using the um, oh, the dude that transforms. What the hell? Abomination. Mm-hmm. That bastard will rip through shit like nobody's business. I love him. I don't care if he freaks everybody else out. <laughs> but then you just send him in there with a couple of scrubs who are disposable, and you're fine. Well, no, I send them in with the other guys. There's a reason why I've only got 140 coin to my my name. <laughs> um, I, I, I send everybody off to be cured. But the point I'm making is, you're 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 watching the stress levels a lot more when you have an abomination in your group. Mm -hmm. And so I get to see that turnover a lot more often where it's going to be either a bad affliction or a short buff kind of thing. And what's funny is that you start to cheer for your guys or or girls (laughs) when they get a buff when they, they pass the tests and like, I've got one, um, the, the guy with the gun, um, the highwayman. Yeah. That motherfucker has not had an affliction yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm about ready to name him. Once I name him, that's it. You're not going anywhere, buddy. Don't, don't give him a name, Roger. Yeah. The minute you give him dead. a name, he's dead. But, uh, but he keeps getting buffs and he does really well in battle. Never have to worry about him. And it's like, I love you. Seriously. So, yeah, he's about ready to be named. But it's funny that the moment that I read that thing about Band of Brothers, because that was... That goes above and beyond what a spectacular war movie should be. Oh, indeed. And it's it's we're actually at some point going to be covering that on uh, on Popcorn Road, and we have to. It is by far my favorite of any war movie, miniseries, anything ever done. And when I read the part about the the grenade and, and the foxhole, I remember exactly what scene they're talking about because when it happened, it if you weren't expecting it, which you weren't supposed to, it just was boom. It happened. Everybody's gone. The impact was so profound as a viewer, like mm-hmm. us who've never had, we're just as shell shocked as he was. Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Well, <laughs> that's yeah. what a point I'm saying. Like we haven't gotten to, we, we haven't had to do these things in, in, and, and that has a huge impact on our sanity. And so I, I like the way that it was tied into this, where it is very much a reaching that breaking point and just either going above and beyond 
and, and pulling through or that's it. You've had it. And, and again, it was very, very cool. I, I, I really found that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's given me an even greater appreciation for the game. Yeah. Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. How about some uh, Batman news from Telltale? We got some <laughs> word about that. In what universe is Batman the lighter? Of the After a discussion point? about right. World War II, yes. <laughs> yeah, we finally got our first details on Telltale's upcoming Batman game. And it's pretty sparse and light at this point because, of course, they're not going to tell you too much. I mean, it's Telltale. They don't tell you it too much at any point in their development. <laughs> But one of the cool things here is they said, of course, you're going to be Batman, but something that Telltale can do that, you know, the Arkham games or what have you really can't do as well is also have you spend time as Bruce Wayne. Because if you're doing an action game, who the hell wants to be walking around a cocktail party? You want to be swinging from rooftops and punching people in the face. But this is a Telltale game. It's all about the narrative. It's all about the story. So they're going to be focusing just as much on Bruce as they are on Batman. So there's going to be points in the game where, you know, you're Doing the Bruce Wayne things, uh, you know, rubbing elbows with higher ups, doing the business deals. And there's going to be parts where you're Batman smashing thugs and fighting supervillains and what have you. But the really cool thing about this is there's also going to be points where you can choose. You can pick. Do you want to solve this problem as Bruce or as Batman? And that I was not expecting that. I was expecting a lot of things from from this game, it never occurred to me that that was going to be an option. I'm thinking of this in terms of, I mean, it's coming out, it, not that it's coming out, but it's the news is coming out at a good time because we can look at what's going on in the Batman series right now, the actual comic book. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it on Comic Book Informer. And while we don't necessarily agree with a lot of the different aspects and how they're written kind of things, what we could agree on were certain elements that were just as interesting, if not much more interesting when dealing with Bruce, as opposed to dealing with Batman. And we've seen that in other series as well. When done properly, the character of Bruce is not the facade that he puts forward of the playboy, which that would be boring to play through, Mm -hmm. but it's this, insanely complex character who has to put on the facade. So it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of how you want to proceed with a story. So when they were saying you'd be able to choose, I actually see a lot more flexibility playing as Bruce, as opposed to just the crack in heads as Batman. And it it has me very, very curious. I'll obviously be doing a couple of playthroughs of the game, but just to do as much possible as 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 possible as just Bruce and see how that affects Gotham going forwards as well. Yeah, because they say Gotham's going to be, of course, a central part of the game. They they appreciate and understand that Gotham is just as much a character as anyone else, and that it's going to evolve as you play through it. But it's funny with the timing because the more immediate parallel I drew was Daredevil because you know, yeah, we we just watched that this week and we're gonna be talking about it tomorrow where. There's certain things Matt Murdock can do for Frank Castle, and there's certain things that Daredevil can do for the Punisher. And even in that series, he reaches a point where he's going to have to choose which path to follow. Yeah. So, and and we definitely see the outcome of that. So I mean, it's it's cool, and, and like having that immediate parallel really opened my eyes to a lot of the options that they can do here. Well, the other thing too is that we've seen 
what Telltale can do with an IP that isn't theirs. And it's almost as if it's a fresh set of eyes on it, on different characters and settings and whatnot. So I'm really curious what their take on Gotham and and Bruce and Batman is going to be. And Alfred. Mm. They better have (laughs) a kick-ass I'll give it a sometimes because I'm I'm still – I'm not going to lie. After uh, episode one of his show, I'm a little hesitant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I I don't blame them for that so much as the IP. Well, okay. No, actually, the blame is split between the writers yeah. and the IP. But, yeah. I, I'm and I also, I also have a tendency. I know, and this is going to sound really bad. I've, I know how Warner Brothers works sometimes, Warner Brothers DC. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they get their hands a little too into thick of things. So while the concepts sound really, really cool and the things that I'm hearing about this sound really awesome and I like the idea of the the split choices, I'm a little nervous of what those choices are going to do and what they're going to let the character basically do through this story. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Is there even an estimated release date for that? I can't. You know how Telltale works. They'll announce a release date a week before. Yeah, because I had and be like, hey, that cool Batman game you guys have been wanting. Hey, here's a trailer for it. Oh, by the way, you can buy it on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Tyranny. You found this as well. Yeah, Tyranny is something I'm now very, very interested in. It's the latest game from the partnership between Paradox Interactive and Obsidian Games. Uh, the, the first game that the two of them brought out together was Pillars of Eternity, which was a phenomenal RPG. And we actually know very little about it at this point. Supposedly, there's going to be a lot of uh, embargoes coming up in the next week or so. So we're going to be getting a lot more information. So I'm really excited to dive into that and talk more about it. But the concept is something I can get behind. You're player character is known as the fate binder there was recently of course a great war between good and evil because that's how all fantasy games start but you were fighting with the side of evil and won so now you are under this great overlord and you have the ability to influence what the lower classes and the the newly conquered kingdoms you know you get to influence how they act from then on you have the choice to help them rebuild their kingdom or further subjugate them in the, the quest for evil. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I, as I said, we know very little at this point, but as a concept and especially from the people that are involved in it, I, I think it could go pretty far. <laughs> then again, after reading the divinity stuff, it's like, well, <laughs> it's probably going to be cool, but... <laughs> That's pretty much what I thought. Yeah. Because it does sound justifiably awesome. Because I, I read then, the tyranny stuff, and then a couple of days later, I watched that <laughs> Divinity video. <laughs> I was like, fuck. Yeah. Damn you, Laren, you've ruined me. <laughs> and then there was a Zero Escape 3, too, that you found. Yes. Time for crazy Japanese shit. Yes. <laughs> Zero Escape 3, Zero Time Dilemma, coming uh, soon. I think it's June or July to Vita and 3DS, and at some point later, also Steam. I actually, like, I've heard of the Zero Escape, but, like, I never really bought into it. I'd heard there was this great game called 999 that everybody, like, but oh, I didn't... Oh, heart played the hell out of that one. I didn't, like... It didn't become like this big like thing that people were talking about until years later. And good luck finding that at this point on the original DS. <laughs> so I haven't had a chance to play it. And I also heard about this cool game called Zero Escape. I didn't realize they were part of the same series. Mm-hmm. 999 was, eh, let's just be honest, it was a failure in Japan, but it really caught on with the Western audience. So the developer went, okay, 
uh, Spike Chunsoft. Feralborn, okay, we're going to give you two more games, Zero Escape 2, Virtue's Last Reward, and Zero Escape 3, Zero Time Dilemma. And they're going to be like companions. They're going to be taking place at approximately the same time. So Zero Escape 2 came out, again, flop in Japan, success in the West. And they went, well, we can't just keep doing these failures in our home country. And they stopped development on Zero Time Dilemma until recently. This is a game that people have been waiting for since 2012 now at this point. So like, I read up on it and it's basically a Japanese version of Saw. And I am 100% behind <laughs> that. The, the concept is that there's nine playable characters. Uh, as I said, a couple of them are carryovers from Zero Escape 2. But I don't have the foundation to really check that out and tell you what any of it means. But they're split into three teams uh, in different parts of the facility. And through the gameplay, you're going to have to be switching between them. Now, where the weird Japanese shit really comes into play is that they're wearing – they're forcibly wearing these armbands that every 90 minutes a drug is injected into their body, causing everyone to lose their memories. So the entire story and your interaction with it is told out of order. You're going to it's a very memento thing that I greatly appreciate because you're going to be getting bits and pieces of the story that aren't going to make any sense until you start piecing it all together. Mm-hmm. It was another game that I was thinking of that did just that. And I didn't put it in my notes, of course, mm. <laughs> but I'll think of it as you talk. I mean, it, it's it's also kind of like her story. Yeah, exactly. That's what Japanese. it was. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It was you're piecing together based on the events that are taking place at, at different times. And just as an FYI, I actually played through some of 999 because it came out for iOS. And so I picked mm. it up on iOS. The problem is, is that it's it's a visual novel more so than anything else. Right. And you are quite literally staring at the same picture without people in it for very, very, very long. That's one thing they talked about with this game. This game, all the story stuff is going to be through voiced cinematics. It's not, it's still a visual novel, but it's not pages and pages and pages of text on static backgrounds. Oh, this, that's all that 999 was. And it wasn't oh, yeah. engaging enough that I could keep going. I was tired of looking at, of that, at that same room for like 15, 20 minutes. I was like, okay, enough's enough. But here's the cool stuff. I think it was on, I forget what, I think it was PC gamer or it might've been polygon. I forget. I, I read a bunch of articles about this game and they all merged together. Talked about a gameplay demo that they, they talked about that they saw. They said the demo started with Sigma, who's one of the playable characters, locked in a chair while Zero, the villain, monologued at him. Phi was next to him, locked inside an incinerator, and Diana stood between them and had to make a choice. Cutscenes are in 3D with moving camera, actual in-game objects. The gun next to Sigma's chair has three live rounds and three blanks. If Diana pulls the trigger, it'll shut down the incinerator, whether or not the bullet is live. But of course, she has a 50-50 chance of killing Sigma. In three minutes, the incinerator will start and kill Phi. If Diana pulls the trigger, the door will open, but Sigma still has a 50% chance of dying. So in the demo, uh, the person who wasn't a developer uh, decided to pull the trigger and told us – oh, no, it was a developer playing through it. They decided to pull the trigger and told us it's completely random what happens. They actually don't know if it's going to be a live bullet or not at the time. Uh, the game calculates the odds with each decision. In this case, the bullet's a blank. Sigma lives and Phi is also saved from the incinerator. They say some of the choices throughout the game will have randomness like that. When he says he doesn't know how it's going to end, he means it. 
because they ran the scene again, and this time Sigma died from the live bullet. So there's going to be not just decisions, but random occurrences that are going to affect how the game plays out and which of the multitude of endings you're going to end up with. How is a bullet going in an incinerator, opening a door? And no, no, the, the, the bullet is pointed at the guy tied to the chair. Or the, gun, the, the gun, the pulling of the the pulling of the trigger is what releases the door. There's, oh, okay, a, there's an actual yeah. image. Like if you go to the wiki, it, sh- it shows yeah, you. If you, a, if you choose to shoot the kid you the in the head, you'll save the person in the incinerator. Very much a saw thing. Oh, absolutely. it's very yeah, absolutely. But with that weird Japanese shit on top of it, so bring Every, it on. Everybody's got jacked up hair, <laughs> jacked up purple <laughs> hair and pink eyes. <laughs> Well, which is interesting because apparently the visual uh, the visual aspect of this is going to be slightly more um, more realistic, slightly less anime <laughs> compared to the other ones. Uh, I guess slightly catering to that Western anime is a sliding scale. <laughs> it's true, but I, I, I have a feeling that has to do with trying to cater to the uh, the Western audience. Since they know that is now oh, their, their, their core audience for this game, they're definitely going to tailor it more in that direction. Oh, and they're already hinting it too. It like not only is this like part of the same universe, but there's going to be direct answers to uh, some of the events of nine 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 in this game as well. Which... And that's where where I'm excited because they they've also hinted that nine 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 and Zero Escape Two will also be receiving Steam releases. So mm-hmm. if you can just play through all three without having to track down old DS cartridges from two thousand nine, um, that's great. Yeah, I don't know that I could put up with nine 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 again. And that, that's entirely your yeah. your decision. Although this sounded more interesting. So, again, yes. it does sound like and, it's going to Yeah, and, and hopefully fun. it'll be able to stand on its own with the bonuses if you have played the previous games. All right, moving on. We got a little bit of information, a teaser trailer for the next chapter, Chapter 12 of uh, Knights of the Fallen Empire. We're in. You're finally going to be getting a little bit closer to the Emperor yet again. And... Again, I, I, you still haven't gotten anywhere remotely close to the end, have you, Vince? I have been so tied up with so many so games right now. I, I've, I've been playing so much and progressing so little in absolutely everything. <laughs> well, the the storyline continues to be awesome for this. So there wasn't a ton on the, the teaser. We're likely to get more news as it gets closer, but it's going to be coming out on the uh, 7th of, of April. And it also, of course, the uh, HK sniper rifle and stuff for people who subscribe in time. But yeah, no, this is continuing to ramp up the story at a really nice pace kind of thing so this is going to be making you again come to grips more with a lot of the choices that you make you have made but also just how far you're willing to go to progress and that's something that i have seen the 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 character that i took took through first was someone that i was choosing mostly good options well she was a smuggler and i played her very much like the a good smuggler, um, but even nicer for the most part. So a lot of the options that I normally would have said, Hey, that sounds cool. Let's do it because it's evil. I'm not doing, and I'm being rewarded though, still with exceptional storytelling for those, which is not something that we've always gotten because a lot of the really cool stuff that's come out in SWTOR often has been when you're choosing darker side option kind of thing. I mean, it's a personal choice, but that's how I've seen it. Whereas with this, you're being rewarded either way you're going, which is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I need to. You need to get into that. Yes, definitely. Lastly, they did the Game Developers Choice Awards, which these are always interesting because sometimes they can stray quite a bit from 
everybody else's awards. And yet this time around this year, pretty much on par with what everybody else has said with her story and the Witcher three being the big winners. So again, I keep going back to as good as I thought her story was. I just don't think it's this good. I nowhere near this good, but I'm I'm happy that it's getting the praise, but I would have liked to have seen like the audience award was life is strange. I would have liked to have seen life is strange getting a lot more of these awards than her story did. (laughs) I am in the same exact boat you are. So, but I mean, Witcher three came out on top and I know that you both have loved that. That's a game that I will at some point dig into. You need to, so there's two ways to play it. Just always bear that in mind. There's, there's little little fits and spurts, and then there's oh my god, where did my week go? Yeah, little fits and spurts works for life, but <laughs> when you're not playing it, you're thinking about playing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. All right, that is going to wrap up the episode. Thank you for joining us. If you made it into our live chat room, of course, you can find us on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern time at forthelore.com slash live. And you can find the show notes, of course, at forthelore. You can find us on Twitter at forthelore or individually Joe is loaders at J until someone finally lets him have at loader. And Vince is at Simodian and myself is at Zen Buddhist. You can also leave us your thoughts and comments on iTunes and Stitcher. And with that, we will see you guys next week. Oh, and Joe's got a feature. Don't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, we won't see you next week. (laughs) It's awesome. And it's coming up now. Far Cry Primal is the latest installment in the Far Cry series. It is a game that takes place in the past instead of the current day. Instead of toppling regimes of evil despots, you're a caveman fighting to survive and also fighting for the survival of your people, the Wenja tribe. After an incredible opening sequence where you survive barely an encounter with the saber-toothed tiger, and after losing everybody of your hunting party, you reach the land of Oros, a prosperous land and what is rumored to be the land of the Wenjas. Upon getting there, you realize that the Wenja tribe has been scattered to the winds and are being hunted by cannibals called the Udam. You don't know why but you'll find out later on. Your goal is to find all of the Wenjas, bring them together to a safe place, and establish, essentially, a homeland here in Oros. Along the way, you encounter people that'll help, people that are shamans or healers, gatherers, and you learn a whole bunch of amazing skills, whether it's crafting your weapons or taming wild beasts. This differs pretty heavily from the rest of the Far Cry series, as you don't purchase weapons here. You make them yourself. You don't have vehicles that you can just steal or take. You tame animals to ride and accompany you into battle. It's an interesting concept, and one, honestly, that that drew me to this game in particular, as opposed to the rest of the Far Cry series, because it was different. Far Cry series as a whole, I hear great things about never played one until this. And I will say this, Far Cry Primal did exceed any sort of preconceived notions that I had. One of the cool things about this here is that they created an entire language for this game. There is an entire language that the Wenjas and the cavemen speak. The game offers you subtitles so that you can understand what they say, but I decided I was going to do something a little bit different. I turned subtitles off. 
I wanted to see if maybe I could understand what was going on in the game without actually being told what was going on. Just wanted to see if the storyline would hold up, so to speak, or, or the feelings would be conveyed, or there'd be something more to it than just, oh, here's some voice acting. And I will say this, I was pleasantly surprised. Even in the opening sequences where you find Sela, your first ally in the game series, in the game itself, you get a sense of everything that's going on from her facial expressions, her body language, and the way she places emphasis on words. While you don't actually know what she's saying or may not know at first, you start to catch up on things. Whether it's telling you to go get something to heal her or telling you that there's going to, that the place you're in is safe, it's very, very well done. One of the most interesting things was the moment where she starts telling you about something to do with why she's collecting these human ears to wear around her neck. And you can see that while you may not be able to tell exactly what it is, whatever she's doing is to disquiet or, or to, to quiet down something tragic that happened to her. Later on, I did find out that she hears the screams of the Wenja people being killed and eaten, and that taking the ears from her enemies actually helps quiet that down. While you may lose a little bit of the specifics in translation, I was very impressed with just how well the emotions of the characters were were just relayed whether from the facial expressions, and in particular the eyes. The eyes in this game are so expressive, and the engine that it is rendered in is phenomenal. Highly impressed with it. I also enjoy the fact that you have to make your own weapons, and there's a finite amount of resources that you can carry on you at a time. If you use your club and light it on fire, it will eventually be consumed. You'll have to build a new one. Your bows will break. You will lose arrows. You will lose rocks from the sling. The sling will wear down. And you are forced to gather more materials. I also appreciate the fact that the game, the AI isn't exactly horrible. When you're hunting Udom, they are hunting you as well. It pays to take very precise strikes from a distance because they can very easily overwhelm you. And there have been several instances in the game where I have died because I simply didn't use the right tactics. I was very impressed. Everything about this was phenomenal to me from the very first time I laid into the world to everything beyond that moment. The game makes phenomenal use of everything from lighting to combat to characterization to making you invested in this world that you're trying to create. And I really do appreciate that, especially because a lot of the games have been very thin as far as plot goes. And while this plot isn't exactly robust, it's not exactly terrible either. It's a basic framework of which you have to work with. You're trying to reestablish your tribe that has been lost. And, well, I can kind of dig that. One of the coolest things is how you interact with the world, whether it's little sacks of goodies left behind in the trees by Wenja who are traveling through, Obviously, they don't have any homes, so they kind of leave things around. You can find those and grab them. To how even fire interacts with the environment. I was hunting wild boars, which, let me back up just a second. Everything in this game wants to kill you. I should I should preface that. Unless it's another Wenja, everything will want to kill you. Whether it's tiny little D-hole, which are like little jackal-type things to boars, to pretty much anything that eats meat is going to want to try to eat you. Keep that in mind. But I was hunting a boar, trying to get some 
food and leather so that I can actually upgrade my stuff and heal myself. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to shoot a flaming arrow at it. Why not? Let's see what happens. Sure enough, that boar lit on fire. And then it proceeded to run through the jungle, leaving a trail of fire in its wake, burning down an entire section of the jungle. That is absolutely insane. The level of sandboxing in this game is very, very, very well done and huge. The fact that you actually light parts of the forest on fire, there's interaction. You have to be careful about this type of stuff is amazing because, well, I mean, if you were in that situation, you would have to be careful. You don't want to light the undergrowth on fire. You don't want to light the trees on fire. That is absolutely amazing to me. I also enjoy the fact that the way that the world is laid out, it's very much about exploring, about learning what's there. And the fact that it's not taking place in a current day environment in just some random island out in the middle of nowhere, it's, there's no roads, there's no markers, there's barely signs of civilization. And the entire time there's that threat of you being hunted, not by enemy soldiers necessarily, but by every living creature. And it's an interesting balance, and it puts you on edge the entire time. I found myself going much slower than I would in a typical type of game where it's running and gunning. Here, I'm trying to stalk between locations. And, yeah, that's amazing to me. To me, at least. I appreciate the fact that the game did something different, that it wasn't just another continuation of modern era despots and guns and vehicles, and it forced you to interact in new ways. I appreciate the fact that the soundtrack was very well done as far as the tribal music, the way that the vocalizations were done for the characters, and everything else in between. Even the audio engineering devoted to the sounds of the animals in the forest is spectacular. And at one point, I just found myself standing there listening to the life that was just teeming all around me, whether it was the cause of, cause of the birds or the roars of the cave lions or the stamping of the mammoths. Everything was really well done, and I think that that should get a lot of credit as well. The game surprised me and fulfilled pretty much every need I would ever have from a game that let me be essentially a caveman running around taming wild beasts, beating the hell out of things that were trying to kill me, making my own everything, whether it was fat from animals so that I could make torches or whatever tools I needed, as well as basically making my tribe from scratch. By the end of the game, I had felt accomplished. I had felt that I had every goal I had set out to do was done, and the game did not disappoint me tight controls, great graphics, amazing audio engineering. If you like first-person shooter-style games but want something a little bit different than actually a shooter, I cannot recommend this game highly enough. It is absolutely fantastic, and I can honestly say worth every penny. Ubisoft did a fantastic job with this game and completely blindsided everybody that was looking into the Far Cry series because who expected dinosaurs? I mean, I guess maybe after Far Cry Blood Dragon you might have been the next logical thing, but it makes me also excited for what's going to come next, what are going to be any content updates to this, and where they're going to go in the future. There are so many different ways they can go. Maybe we'll wind up in a Far 
across land. Maybe we'll wind up in the frozen waste of Alaska. Maybe we'll be fighting vampires and zombies. Maybe zombie vampires. Who knows? But this here has definitely solidified this is a franchise that I will now be watching out for just by the superb caliber of what was presented here in this game. Thank you for listening to For the Lore. Each week, the show is broadcast live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stop by forthelore.com slash live to join the conversation and have your thoughts discussed on the show. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Comic Book Informer, a weekly podcast from Vince and Roger, as well as Popcorn Ronin, a bi-weekly movie, TV, and anime podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs.